Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Hello, welcome to our fall kickoff episode. And if you're listening to this on the day it's released, we are now officially in September. And uh, where did the summer go? Sarah, question for you. Okay, I've been dying to know. How does it feel having kids back in school? Like I can breathe again. I mean, I don't mean it in a bad way, right? We had a fantastic summer. I remember more of this summer than I did the summer of 2020, which I don't know if anybody else is like this, but I'm like, how did we survive that? I don't actually remember what we did. Mm. We had a fantastic time. And now that I have multiple hours in a row where nobody's interrupting me, where I can actually get work done, it's magic. Tell me everything about it. (laughs) I know you'll get there soon. You will get there soon. It's been really, really great. And it's fantastic because we have a lot of stuff that we're working on here to bring to all of you. So Misasha, speaking of the summer, let's do a brief summer recap before we dive into what we have planned for the fall. What were your three favorite things about this summer and why did you pick each one? Okay. And so I surprised myself when I was thinking about this, because the thing that stands out to me most about this summer is summer Sandlot, which like in another year or like an alternate universe, I would never pick kids sports as the thing that stands out. I think if you have listened to the podcast from the beginning, you probably know my stance on kids sports and my kids do a lot of them. But Summer Sandlot this year felt really different. First of all, because kids were just out there playing, right? There were no practices. You just show up and you play and you play with your friends. And yeah, it's competitive on some level because what kids sports thing isn't at this point. And yeah, because of where we live, we had official shirts and hats. So it wasn't like you just show up (laughs) with your t-shirt. Okay. So it's not like you're picturing from the movies yet. It was still like the most community-based thing in the end, because parents were out there like, well, drinking our white claws, if I'm being hundred percent honest, (laughs) (laughs) I need to upgrade you out of white claw, but okay. Dude, it, I mean, it works really well for a baseball field, but you know, and we're out there and we're meeting new people and the kids are just having so much fun and you can see it in their faces and you can see it when these are families that we met that have become good friends now. I hear you. So it's really a highlight of the summer. It sounds like community and freedom. Yeah, I think it was. And even though the very last game, we went back to being masked because, you know, we have the reality of the Delta variant and other variants out there. It was still such a marked difference from, you know, Sarah, you were saying you didn't really remember the summer of 2020. I don't either. Like that summer may just not have happened. I'm not even sure. But this is something that stands out for me. Okay. So then since I spent a long time on number one, number two, seeing you, right? We got got together and seeing you and seeing my parents at the right after the boys got out of school was, you know, because you're my family and they're my family. And so it was such a great way to be able to finally see family right after so long. And my third is getting to hold our book. Like we wrote a book and the, you know, we got the advanced reader copies and to physically hold something that has been in progress for a while was really great. All right. So Sarah, what about you? 
top three. I will answer those in a second because I want to say you said, hold your book. I can tell that you're like a kinesthetic. I was sniffing our book. I love (laughs) the smell. And for those of you who don't know, we have a book called Dear White Women. Let's get uncomfortable talking about racism. And it is coming out on October 12th. It is available for pre-order. We're in the midst of setting up all sorts of corporate and book club and sort of conversations around it. So if you're at all interested, drop us a line at hello at dearwhitewomen.com. We will give you all the details, but okay. Summer, because I really want to get into what we're talking about today too. But seeing people again, number one, for sure. My family, my mom had her, we finally celebrated her 70th birthday. We went to see our relatives in Canada, which because the border finally opened, got to see you, you know, neighbors, the pool. It was just incredible to feel connected and grounded and just some, like some freedom again and grounding. And then the second one about the summer was setting boundaries around work and home to stop feeling guilty and overwhelmed and exhausted all the freaking time. I don't know if anybody else felt that, but I felt like, you know, you just asked about school. School has definitely helped with that, as will our end of September Soul Fuel event, which if you're on our email list, you would have just gotten information about that. But if you don't know, I was basically feeling murky and lost and was like, who am I anymore? I need some clarity and help and time to myself. And so we created this event for the end of September. You're welcome to join us. But yeah, you helped me with that, Misasha. And I love what we do and I want it to be sustainable. So being able to reset those was really helpful for me. And then third was like the kids getting to have fun. You know, I don't know if you listeners have children, but like their eyes sort of got dull over the course of the COVID, you know, shutdown. And over the summer, one of them just like exclaimed, I found my people after this certain set of summer camps. And it's just thrilling to see the life back in their eyes. It's a relief. It's a comfort. And it's like, wow, these kids are so resilient. You just, I've learned so much from these children, but to see them feeling good again, makes me like relieved as a mother. So what I'm really excited about beside our book coming out, like I mentioned, is our fall lineup of episodes. So now that we're done with our summer of action, We're focused on issues that have not only been in our consciousness, but ones that we've been hearing about throughout 2021 and ones that we really want to highlight for the fall. So an overview, if you'll bear with us, and then we'll dive into one of these really interesting topics that you researched so well. I learned so much (laughs) for this one. Thank you. But in September, right, we're going to be focusing on current events and topics that you may have heard about in the news, including representation in the media, QAnon, so much more. And we've got some incredible guests, actually. So you'll want to make sure you're following the show. In October, we're going to be devoting it to all things voting and our political systems as we look at the practical things we all need to be aware of when we vote this November or in 2022, or as we read and listen to the news. But I promise we'll do them in a way that's not a snooze fest and more of an action-oriented, empowering way. And finally, in November, we'll be talking to people who are working on transformative change in their own spheres of influence and see how they got involved in doing this impactful work and how we can sort of take nuggets and incorporate them in our own lives too. Of course, asterisk, all of this may change as things like international affairs currently are are absolutely wrecking our world. You know, the news cycle gets thrown in there, but we're really excited to be having these discussions with you all. So to kick this all off, let's talk about the census because We've learned a lot about who we are and our own communities with the news that's been coming out over the last few weeks. And I think it goes deeper than what we're hearing on the surface. We really need to understand it. As I said, I learned so much about how we need to position this critical information that only comes out once every 10 years and actually really shapes the way the course of our next decade 
will go, which if I think about is by the time I'm going to be an empty freaking nester, right? So this is a big chunk of time that this census impacts. And so I'm really excited to talk about it with you. Yes. And so I want to add that I might be one of those rare people who's actually bought books about the census because I find like, I saw that I felt that eye roll like all the way what? in California. Yeah. I have, I have books about the census. So, cause did you notice that Mohammed Anwar of Softway just called us the yin and yang of yes. podcast hosts? <laughs> I now see where he got that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think, you know, I'm a super nerd about certain things, politics and, you know, how we think about politics being one of them. So the census is really closely tied to that. Although sometimes because we receive it and, you know, it's fill out all these things and you send it back, we don't necessarily see the connections. And so I think, you know, there are some great people out there who are writing about the connections. And Heather Richardson Cox is one who writes this amazing newsletter called Letters from an American. And it's something I read every day without fail, you know, and it teaches me so much. But one of the ones she wrote recently was about the census. And so we wanted to share some of this with you. So as noted by Cox on August 12th, the Census Bureau released information about the 2020 census. So the one that we all filled out last year, designed to enable states to start the process of drawing new lines for their congressional districts, which is a process that's known as redistricting. So this is a constitutional requirement because the U.S. Constitution requires that the government count the number of people in the country every 10 years so that lawmakers can divide up the representation in Congress. And this is really important because it's apportioned according to population in the House of Representatives. And as a reminder, the Senate is by state, right? So each state gets two senators. The House of Representatives is where, you know, the population really plays a role in how many reps you have in there. So this is also really important, the census, that is, because of our electoral college, I just said I forgot the entire summer. It was mainly because it was such a painful year. Okay, I forgot all of it. So tell me more. <laughs> right, I'm with you. Okay, but the Electoral College is how we elect the U.S. president. Each state gets the number of electors that is equal. So this is some simple math here, right? To the number of senators and representatives combined. So let's say your state has 10 representatives and two senators. Your state would then have 12 presidential electors. All right. So, you know, it's important to note that censuses are never 100 percent accurate, right? Because, first of all, it's hard to count people, especially if they don't want to be counted. And censuses are also inherently political because if you think about it, right, a corrupt president wouldn't want an accurate count. Right. They would want areas that support their party to be overcounted, while areas that support the opposite party to be undercounted. So in other words, censuses can be completely manipulated for political use and which, if you remember the debate around the 2020 census, was a key concern for a lot of people with regards to Trump's view of the census. I remember that part of it. And let's like go way back in history now to dig into a famous example of both of these Here for it. problems. <laughs> the 1890 census. Right. So indigenous Americans who were eager to avoid the observance of the federal government out of concern for their lives, they moved around to avoid being counted. And remember, in terms of context in the 1890s ish, those were the days when boarding schools were set up for Native American children. And in fact, shortly after the 1890 census, a year later, boarding schools were made mandatory for Native American children, which meant 
often that they were forced separation from their families and communities. So when you talk about that census, there were definitely people who did not want to be counted, like you just mentioned me, Sasha. And then the process itself was also notoriously corrupt because call it 1889 and 1890, the Republican Party had forced the admission of six new Western states, right? North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Washington, Idaho, and Wyoming. And those states that supported the Republicans, and they had insisted that the new census would show that there were enough people there to warrant statehood. So they were eager to find lots and lots of people in those new states, but very few in the populous territories of Arizona and New Mexico, which they knew would vote Democratic. So, right? That was a really corrupt census. And today, because of the pandemic, states are already behind in their schedules to redistrict for the upcoming 2022 election. So that's why the Census Bureau released the information states need to begin that process. It released its record of the number of people living in each state and U.S. territory. But in addition to needing to know the actual numbers of the count, State lawmakers need to know the racial makeup of their states since there are federal rules about making sure minority votes aren't silenced in the redistricting by, for example, splitting a minority vote into small enough groups among districts so that minorities essentially don't have a voice, which is called cracking, or concentrating the members of one group into a single district so they're underrepresented at the state level, which is called packing. Right. So the material that came out in mid-August was not the entire information from the census. I think we're going to see that come out, you know, in pieces over time. But it was just the material that states really need for redistricting, like you were talking about, Sarah. It shows how many people there are living in America today. So population shifts in that information that was released mean that Montana, Oregon, Colorado, North Carolina and Florida all picked up a seat. And remember, this is House of Representatives, while Texas picked up two, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, Illinois, California and West Virginia all lost one. So within those states, cities have grown and rural counties have lost people. And for the first time in our history, all 10 of the country's largest cities now have more than a million people in them. Think about how large that is, right? The top 10. That material, as you mentioned, Sarah, also shows the nation's racial makeup. And that information is confusing, you know, as all self-identification on a form can be. And I think, Sarah, you and I oh, yes. know firsthand how difficult that can be, right? So the 2020 census says that America's white population has dropped significantly since 2010. According to the census, people who identify as white now make up 58% of the population, while just 10 years ago, they made up 64%. But the census also shows that people who self-identify as a mixture of races has skyrocketed, climbing from 9 million in 2010 to 33.8 million in 2020. It seems likely, therefore, you know, that some of the drop in self-identification as white is due to people identifying themselves differently than they did even 10 years ago. Well, and just to put that in context, help me remember, which census was it that they finally started allowing people to identify themselves as mixed race? Wasn't that 2000? 2000. Right? Really recent. So this is only the second census that you and I have been able to check off more than one race. Right. So that's where, you know, people are learning how to self-identify now. And so- I want to talk a little bit about why this happened. As the New York Times noted, for the 2020 census, officials really tried to more accurately capture who America really is. And so last year's census form differed substantially from the one in 2010, 
And that is from Rachel Marks, who's the chief of racial statistics branch at the Census Bureau. And she said this in an interview. Lines were added under the boxes for black and for white, where you know respondents could describe and more nuance their racial backgrounds. And then on top of that, coding capacity improved too, which captured far more detail in people's written answers than before. And so some of those changes, she said, contributed to the rise in the numbers of people who identified as more than one race. But demographic change was a factor too, though she said it was impossible to say how much of the dramatic growth it accounted for. You know, Ms. Mark said, when she was asked whether part of the decline in the number of people who identified as non-Hispanic white was related to changes in the form, she said she could not say for sure one way or the other. We're still digging into the data. She said, I think these improvements and changes could have also contributed to that, but it's certainly a trend we've been seeing for the past several decades. Yeah. And so I think that that result or the result of the 2020 census and all of these you know, changing options is a much more nuanced but an actually much more accurate portrait of how Americans see themselves. And that's what social scientists have said as well. Even if part of that spike in the multiracial category was as much about reclassification as it was about like real growth and population. Right. Can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. Like if you put it in context, you were only allowed to have mixed race marriages in the 1970s. Yeah. And so if you think about the children of those people, finally understanding that it's okay to still also mixed race, like they were one population of mixed race, but then you're seeing people shift in how they're allowed to view marriages over the course of a generation. I think this makes sense, right? Right. Well, and remember the problematic other box, right? I think that once you stop classifying people as other and you move them into actual racial categories, then of course you've got like a whole bunch more people suddenly, right? Yeah. So according to Richard Alba, who is a sociologist who has written about race categorization and the census, He has said that typically a large share of Hispanic Americans check the box for white in the race question. But now, he also says, they were given the chance to describe their backgrounds more fully, an addition which could have flipped them into the multiracial category. So he said, that's not a change in social reality. That's a change in the way social reality is being categorized. And in the long run, we will probably be able to say more precisely to what extent is there a real change? And to what extent is this a coding change? You know, and this reminds me in our book, we really talk about how even that category of Hispanic on the census, you know, came to be and how difficult that was and what a change that was. So I'm super interested to see, you know, what that means. And yeah, totally. You know, It's important to note, though, that this coding change is not simply just a statistical blip, like those numbers indicate way more than that, right? It was a meaningful widening of options. People had to say who they felt they were. And, you know, as we just discussed, like we couldn't pick more than one race on the census, right, until 2000. And I mean, do you remember how that felt like checking the other box or, you know, it's and so how thinking back to those experiences, how did you feel? filling out the census this year or even filling it out for your kids. Right. Right. I felt so liberated. How about you? Like I asked the kids, how do you identify? It was amazing when my three quarters white, one quarter Japanese children were like Asian and white. And I'm like, yes, you know, it allowed them to be identified in a certain way too. Yeah. And I mean, for my kids, they've got three. Right. And so to not even have to just pick between two, right. They can just pick all their identities is really powerful, I think, because it it is. It is 
you defining yourself as who you are, right? And the census recognizing that it's not as simple. Because I think we've seen even recently people try to fit us into one box, right? Either we're Asian or we're white, but we can't be both. And so the census allowing us to not only be both, but many, I think is really important. Yeah. I challenge those of you who don't understand this to like, imagine if there was, if you identify as white, imagine if there was no white box on the census. Imagine, right? Like we never have belonged. We did not belong in one box or another our whole lives. And finally the option to be fully who we are and belong somewhere and claim our whole identities on a, like a paper that the government is recognizing is actually really powerful. Yeah. Heather Richardson Cox is talking about the 1920 census. And she noted that the combination of urbanization and multiculturalism in that census led lawmakers to create an imbalance in our government as a result. And what I'm about to tell you, I didn't know until this episode, until you researched and shared with me this information, Misasha, the constitution says that a state cannot have a representative for fewer than 30,000 people. But it doesn't say anything about an upper limit of constituents represented by a single representative. So in 1912, when the country had 92 million people, the House had grown to 435 members. But the 1920 census showed that more Americans lived in cities than in the country at the same time that white Americans were pretty pissed off that those new urban dwellers were black Americans and immigrants from Southern and Central Europe and Asia. And so aware that continuing to allow more representatives for these growing numbers of Americans meant that the weight of representation would move away from rural white America and towards immigrants in cities, lawmakers refused to continue increasing the number of seats in the House. So concurrently and not surprisingly, they also passed that 1924 Immigration Act, which we talk about in our book too, but it set quotas on how many people from each country could come to America. And so this is what I learned. In 1929, lawmakers froze the number of representatives at 435 voting members of the House. You know, while this number would bounce around as new states came in, for example, it has once again settled as the number of voting representatives today when our population is 331 million. You know, this was the same number of representatives when I just mentioned in 1912, when we had 92 million people. And they're not necessarily representing those populations accurately, because this cap means that the size of the average congressional district is now 711,000 people, which is a number that is far higher than the framers intended, and that favors smaller, more rural, wider states in the House of Representatives. And it also favors those states in the Electoral College where they have more weight proportionately than they would if the House had continued to grow. See, this is why I think history is so important, right? Or just one example of it, because that is a census from a hundred years ago, right? But that census and what happened in that census has set us up for our electoral college issues today, for how different populations have a way stronger pull than they probably should it based on population and population density and where they live alone. But when we do that math again, representatives plus senators equals your electoral college electors, right? For each state, that those numbers mean a lot in how we elect presidents. So I think, you know, when you're looking for through lines, right, of like when, you know, this happens, then this is the result. I think we can see that in the census. And that is really powerful. Yeah. And I think what you just said points to our need to pick our heads up out of this every two years, every four years, like scrappy little fights 
and play the long game for once. You know, we're so used to instant gratification with everything that has happened in our country, but not all countries think this way. Not all countries think so short term. And when you just talked about the hundred year impact of that census, we really need to be thinking broadly and critically and, and sort of pick our heads up and look at what we're going through right now in history from the long game. What is our country going to look like in a hundred years? Will it be here? Will it be functioning as a democracy based on what choices we're making today? I think that's a really important point. I'm glad you said that. I want to go back to race though, because you know what started to happen in the 1920 census is really important today for some of the results that came out in the 2020 census. Because by identifying everyone by race, as you know, it needed to for redistricting purposes, as you discussed at the start, Sarah, the 2020 census material also brings up what sociologist Karen E. Fields and historian Barbara J. Fields have called racecraft, which, you know, by artificially dividing people along racial lines, reinforces the idea of race as the most important thing in society. You know, when we think about what was released in mid-August, that doesn't include let's say income or wealth, right? Which are not explicitly factored in, you know, when counties and states are redistricting, but, you know, which the last census material released on that topic suggested, you know, those factors are at least as divisive as race, right? And so one more thing that Heather Richardson Cox says, you know, she says that the idea that race is paramount is, of course, the theory that the right wing would really like Americans to believe, along with this idea that the white Americans are being replaced, that's in heavy air quotes, by people of color and black Americans. And that falls right into the white ring, right wing argument that minorities are replacing white Americans. You know, if you recall, we just talked about all of the factors that go into how race has shown up on this census, right? And it's not as simple as that argument. For a century now, right, redistricting has favored rural whites with the 2020 census information reinforcing the idea for some that white rural Americans are under siege. It seems, you know, fairly unlikely that lawmakers in Republican states will want to rebalance the system. But at the same time, it seems equally unlikely that increasingly urbanizing multicultural nation will continue to accept being governed by an ever smaller white rural minority, right? I would think so, especially if we all realize that that is actually what is happening right now. Right. So I know, Sarah, you talked about the long game, but in the short term, right, what does this mean for this election season? And also, really importantly, for the midterms in 2022 as well? You know, like we said at the start... We can't wait to share more of these types of possibly very uncomfortable conversations with you this fall. We will get into those questions that you just asked me, Sasha, coming up in future episodes. So if you haven't already set up your system to follow us and get our weekly episodes, do so now. And please tell some friends so we can make sure that these conversations are shared far and wide. If you're looking for more to do personally on this topic, on the census, the Brennan Center is a great resource on redistricting and all of the issues that are coming out of the census. And one other favorite, Common Cause, who had a great webinar last night looking at this that I listened to. It's focused on grassroots efforts to change how areas think about redistricting. And there are certain state organizations you can get involved in. So if you go on their website, you can find out what state-specific efforts they have, or if not, what national efforts they have to make sure your communities are fairly represented going forward. 
Also, make sure to stay on top of local politics as there are local commissions being held right now. Like literally, I just missed one yesterday or two days ago in Colorado that are impacting how districts will look going forward. It takes a little effort for sure, but it's worth it if we can make sure that everyone's voice is heard and everyone is represented. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.